Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Thoughts on Film podcast. I am Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. How do, folks? How do? It's uh, that time in October when we talk about the films that we saw in October. So let's talk about those films. We saw in October while it's October. Yes. Right. I see you're familiar with the concept. I, I see a pattern, certainly. <laughs> so, so we'll kick off with today's discussion with a chat about Ad Astra. Drew, what's that all about then? Well, I I feel, Scott, that I was sold something of a dummy by the trailer for Ad Astra, or at least by my memory of it, although um, subsequent to writing these notes, I did check the trailer, and no, my memory of it was fine, the trailer's wrong. Um, <laughs> As it seemed to focus on the alien intelligence and planetary threat aspects of its story, making it seem more like Event Horizon than similar films. And while, certainly, there is an element of gone mad in space, it's definitely not Event Horizon, although it would be inaccurate to say that it didn't share some elements. Stare into the void too long and the void will stare back, though this time it's just you not space demons or whatever the hell was going on in Paul W.S. Anderson's film. Brad Pitt plays Roy McBride, the astronaut's son of famed astronaut and extraterrestrial intelligence pioneer Clifford McBride, played by Tommy Lee Jones. McBride Sr.'s mission to Neptune to search for existence of alien life went dark many years ago, but now a powerful electromagnetic surge is coming from the mission's last known coordinates, and it threatens infrastructure, and therefore life, on Earth. Roy is enlisted to investigate what's happening because, wouldn't you just know it, things are not quite what the people have been told. <laughs> While Roy goes off to confront Colonel Kurtz, dad, I mean his dad, <laughs> definitely not Colonel Kurtz, we are treated to regular monologues as the taciturn, stoic, apparently unfaceable martial machine begins to explore his psyche, his unresolved anger and childhood trauma, and, not to put too fine a point on it, his daddy issues. His dad may also be an allegory for God, or the creator, if you look for it. And by look for it, I mostly mean watch the film. Because <laughs> it's not really hidden, though it's not harming you over the head with it. I know writers that use subtext and they're cowards. <laughs> a few weeks removed from it, I'm still sure if I actually like Ad Astra, though I know for certain that I didn't dislike it. And there were some almost objectively excellent things. First and foremost, Brad Pitt, who may never have been better, and is called upon to carry the vast bulk of the film on his own. McBride Jr. is a pretty cold and distant character, and it's quite remarkable that Pitt has managed to make him relatable at all. Hoyta van Hoytema's cinematography is stunning, and there were a number of wonderful spacey and moony set-pieces. That's the technical terms, is it? Yes. <laughs> I'm a stickler for that, Scott, as you know. <laughs> they go to places that are both spacey and moony. <laughs> Beginning with the film's opening scene, as Roy falls from a giant space antenna. And if Robinson Crusoe and Mars taught us anything, <laughs> which surely it has, for why else is it in the Criterion Collection? <laughs> it's that monkeys plus space equals awesome. Uh, and the unexpected space monkeys here provide for a very memorable chapter. <laughs> All my life, or at least podcasting life, I've waited for the chance to write unexpected space monkeys. The day has finally come <laughs> to move on from space monkeys. I, um, no, I let's go back. <laughs> well, they are, they are awesome, Scott. Monkeys plus space equals awesome. Uh, I change my mind regularly about the value of describing films in terms of other films. Though I sometimes do think it can be useful to give a flavour. 
And I don't think it would be inaccurate to begin describing Ad Astra as Apocalypse Now in Space via Tarkovsky. And nor in fact would I be the first to do so. And that's not to say James Gray's film isn't its own thing, with its own identity. And it's not interstellar. So that's good. <laughs> Though they do share the same cinematographer, which is also good. Um, anyway, it doesn't, for instance, waste its existential treatise by having its allegedly professional astronaut lose almost immediately, then get tangled in all sorts of fifth dimensional, only vaguely real knots trying to tie everything together via bookcase. <laughs> Murph! Murph! <laughs> watch Ad Astra instead. I actually can't stop thinking about Robinson Crusoe on Mars now. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. So I can watch it. Um, yeah, no, uh, not seen this, sadly. Um, very disappointed in myself. Uh, yes, I will get to it forthwith. Yeah, it certainly sounds like an interesting uh, piece of cinema, more so than a lot of things that's come out this year. Yeah, I I can absolutely see that you might not enjoy it. That's definitely high up there in the list of possibilities of how you might feel about it, I would suspect. But mm-hmm. it's absolutely interesting. Yeah. Which, which beats out so many films, as you know. Uh, yes. Yeah, again, I, I, I honestly can't tell whether I liked it or not. And I've thought about it a wee bit, which is generally... That's a good sign again. I found it interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's the thing is with, with Brad Pitt's monologue throughout it, it's in danger of getting a wee bit navel gazy at times. Um nice. at least character wise, not like filmmaker wise. Yeah. But I'm not honestly not sure if it's something that would merit a rewatch, but I, I'm already considering it, so maybe. Yeah. But yeah. Definitely interesting. Definitely um not like it, your average space thing, which is what the trailer can is, is and I, I never understand why trailers do that. To, to, I mean, that. This is by far not one of the most egregious examples, but of, of like selling your your film wrong because how who helps who is aided by that? Yeah, yeah. You just you get bad word of mouth then, and actually, I actually heard it mentioned on something recently, and it's very easy to imagine that. One of the things that makes a, an audience really sour in a film more than anything is it not being what they expected. Yeah. And I don't mean in a film that sets out to surprise you sort of way. I just mean like basically being sold a dummy, you know, if like being misled by marketing or something. And that, yeah. that more than like maybe somebody doesn't like a film, that's okay. But if they feel like they were missold, people will get angry yeah. and disappointed. Yeah. If I go through example, that's always Watchmen, which is. You know, it, it clearly sets out as still as being like a, a more of a meditative piece that has a, a very occasional burst of action. In it. But if you watch the trailer, it was looking like every other comic book film in the world, yeah, um, yeah. And, it, and it most certainly wasn't. So I can understand why people were uh, a bit upset at not getting what they were promised. Yeah, well, on, on those terms, this is very much more Watchmen than you know Event Horizon or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I would recommend watching it though. I think there's. There's enough in there to get your teeth into. Yes, good, good. Okay, so we'll move on to something that uh, is actually in here because I had a, a vague notion, Scott, at some point of putting together a podcast where the general theme was stuff that I couldn't give a crap about <laughs> in terms of subject material. Have you read my introduction here? <laughs> Quite near the top of which is dance. Um, and in fact, there was not just one, but two dance films on that uh, on that list, the other being Wim Wenders' documentary about the German dancer, um, Pina, 
fact, yes. Uh, and a couple of other reasons that I wanted to watch Yuli, though, which I suspect you will mention. So I'll let you take over from here. Tell us about Yuli, Scott. Yes, so I like yourself. The world of dance is not one, I must confess, anything I have any knowledge of or any particular interest in. Uh, so while to many the name Carlos Acosta may need no further introduction, I most certainly did. Handy then that Uli is the biopic of Acosta's life through the interesting and achingly meta-framing device of Acosta producing, I suppose you'd call it an autobiographical dance production of his life story, while also flashing back to a rather more traditionally told dramatisation of his youth. It is, in the main, more focused on the early years, indeed the very early years, as Acosta played as a nipper by Edlison Manuel Olvera Nunez, who doesn't so much embrace his raw talent for dance as have it forced onto him by his father Pedro, Santiago Alfonso, who, rightly as it happens, sees it as an escape route from a humble life in Cuba to the household name he no doubt is in more cultured households than mine. These segments are vibrant and charming with excellent performances from young Nunez and Alfonso, and it's this father-son relationship that's the heart of the film. It's perhaps a little less engaging when an older Acosta, played by Kevin Martinez, is on his way to conquering the world of dance while dealing with the separation from his family and the pressures of his position. And as for Acosta himself, well, he's perhaps not top-tier acting talent, but the dance routines interspersed through the piece are really quite extraordinary and powerful stuff. Although I'm not convinced that one about the American general belongs in there. That, that seemed a little <laughs> forced. Like, well, that, that was certainly a scene that wasn't going for subtext, Scott. That yes. text was very much on the top. Because like, yes. they, they just spoke all of the things you're supposed to think over the top of it. <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I don't really buy interpretive dance much because I don't believe it's interpreting much. It's, it's not one for me at all. But that was... Um, they didn't even try, I don't think. So. You, march in place and we'll say things. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I suspect that's missing the point. <laughs> Sorry. In, it's not interpretive, it's more out-interpretive, I suppose. <laughs> nice. Ishar Bolain directs, uh, not that you'd know it from her Wikipedia page, Get That Sorted Boffins, uh, reuniting her with her Even the Rain screenwriter Paul Laverty, long-time Ken Loach collaborator. And husband. Uh, yes, and they have done a bang-up job alongside Acosta's exceptional dance and choreographical talent, which I insist is a word, even if <laughs> autocorrect doesn't, uh, in producing a unique and distinctive biopic that's a joy to watch. I've not seen anything quite like this, and I approve of it. Uh, not sure I'll ever watch it again. I'm not sure it's encouraged me to go and get more involved with the world of dance, but um, certainly the way it is presented here, it is very engaging indeed, and I quite enjoyed it. Yes, uh, apart from what I'd mentioned before about that putative topic, um, I had also particularly been interested in this because of Ethiar Boyain um, mm. and Paul Laverty. Paul Laverty's, I've seen a lot of films he'd be like, I, I really love Even the Rain, mm. which is we, a couple of years ago now we talked about that, Scott, I think, in an yes. episode about yeah. like uh, issue movies. Yes. So certainly there was plenty of talent behind the camera to get me interested in this, even though I, I had no interest whatsoever in in the subject matter. But yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting film. It's... It's like a, it is an odd structure and it, it's almost a documentary spliced with a biopic. Yeah. It's quite unusual and quite meta. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right that the actual Carlos Acosta playing himself isn't great. But again, he's, he's not an actor, he's a dancer. I know there's obviously there's some overlap in certain areas there, but and to play yourself is probably not particularly easy, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he still does a pretty good job and... I think perhaps like you, actually, that if I had a, an issue, it's with, oh, is it Kevin Martinez? Mm-hmm. As the, he's a dancer as well, but as the younger-ish adult, uh, Yuli. Yeah, the, the sort of 
16 to 18, 20 ish yeah, kind um, of year old span, which. Because uh, he, he sort of comes across as a bit of a punk. Yeah. You know, a bit of a. He's got a bit of a chip in his shoulder, which maybe is true to the character too, but it's. He it, it kind of rubs me out the wrong way a wee bit in his scenes. And again, maybe because he's primarily a dancer, it's it's perhaps just he's, there's a little, um, little bit of shortcoming on the acting side. Maybe these are all fairly minor issues. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. I've not seen anything like it. Uh, Santiago Alfonso himself playing his father is fantastic. He's a dancer too, Scott. I don't know if you've oh, right. yeah. seen that. He's a dancer too, and um, he had. He was regaling the cast and crew with tales of when the mafia were in Havana because he's been in Cuba a long time and like experienced a lot of the racism that that character experienced too and like, the pre-revolutionary Cuba with all the the mafia and the US influence and stuff. Yeah, and it's also just, Cuba's just a really interesting country. I wish I could understand Cuban Spanish. I can't. I think the accents are too thick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but just the country's really interesting. I've not seen a great many films set in Cuba, unless you set aside small parts of one of the Fast and Furious films, <laughs> not counting. Uh, and I just find it a fascinating place. And the so like that, that kind of cultural and political background story going on there, which is really interesting too. Yeah. With the problems that happened with the fall of the Soviet Union and, and the continuing and illegal and always condemned by the unfortunately completely toothless UN, US embargo of yeah. Cuba and how it was suffering and how that affected Yuli himself. It's, it's just fascinating. I just, the only thing is perhaps I wish it had been a slightly clearer where the name came from that Yuli is the name of the uh, Ogun who's an African god, which I guess has come over from with the slaves to the Caribbean. Mm. It kind of makes it clear that Yuli is a god, but I'd like a wee bit more of the, the mythology behind that, I think, rather than you're named after a god, but... Yeah, it's it's mentioned once, and it doesn't really really seem to become a, a through line or issue to it again. To the point where it's it's a bit confusing why it's the title of the piece. Uh, yeah, beyond it being his nickname, I guess. But uh, yeah, maybe that plays stronger in Cuba. Yeah, uh, but it's a it's like Spanish German co production. I think it's not even. It's obviously set and filmed partly in Cuba, but it's mm. yeah, that's it, it's odd to focus on that. Um, yes. When you could, I don't see why not just calling it Acosta would be a problem. When I think people might recognise the name more than people who knew him as the dancer, because he's always, you know, new principal dancer of the Royal Ballet, Carlos Acosta. Yeah, yeah. They maybe get to a wider audience just by changing your name. Even just keep all the stuff in the film about why he's called Yuli. Yeah. Strange to make it the name, though, but presumably they didn't choose it by chance. I mean, they felt that actually meant something to Acosta himself. But yes, uh, Sod all to do with the film, really, though. I suppose <laughs> yeah. it's like, here's this, it's a film about a dancer, and I thought it was great. So that's yeah, a surprise. Uh, yeah, absolutely one of the most, um, yeah, I think I'd say unique. It's, it's certainly one of the most unique films I've seen this year. Uh, one of the, It'll be one of the most memorable ones, I'm sure. If we do a, a year end wrap up, this will be one uh, jousting from amongst the top spots. And uh, yeah, if you can see this, then I recommend that you do. I concur. So shall we move on then to the very similarly themed Rambo, <laughs> yeah, Last Blood? We should definitely do that. Last Call, Last Man Standing. Ugh, last Shred of Dignity of Sylvester Stallone's <laughs> career. <laughs> last of the Summer Wine. <laughs> yes, I suppose we could talk about it. But before I continue, we need to talk about Rambo. Or at least we need to talk about the name. 
while called Rambo, the first film, oh, Rambo by many, uh, the first film in the series is, of course, First Blood. The second, Rambo, First Blood Part 2. Then we have Rambo 3, followed by the fourth instalment, Rambo. <laughs> and now, Rambo Last Blood, which, if you've been following, and I don't blame you if you haven't, <laughs> is actually First Blood 5. <laughs> Almost as confusing is the change in tone and genre throughout the series. I'd never actually seen a Rambo film until the 2008 outing, but thanks to being a child of the 80s and no doubt aided by by things like hot shots, I had always been aware of the character as a militaristic badass action hero. But that's not actually how it began. Before going to see the latest instalment, I watched First Blood for the first time and was rather surprised to discover it's not even really an action film. No. At least not by the more typical standards of the 1980s. Even more surprisingly, perhaps, it had something to say, addressing a nation and public which had seemingly turned their backs on its soldiers, a counterpoint to the takes of Oliver Stone and Brian De Palma, amongst others. That's before, of course, the franchise became a super macho, gory gunfest, intent on refighting Vietnam by proxy and winning it for the US this time. <laughs> Then, when Sylvester Stallone was throwing everything at the wall during the 2000s to resurrect his action career to see what stuck. Surprisingly, that turned out to be most stuff. (laughs) Um, The 28 Rambo was a much more basic affair. A taciturn and reluctant hero compelled to decimate the forces of our corrupt military through the medium of 50 calibre machine gun splash damage. (laughs) It was ridiculous and an absolute hoot. (laughs) Though I really should perhaps see someone about quite how entertaining I find such over-the-top violence. (laughs) This latest, and by both name and hope, last instalment, is (laughs) somewhat more muddled. Though, seeming at several points more like Rocky than Rambo. And with a first half where you can clearly see Stallone watch Liam Neeson and Taken and clearly thought, yeah, that, but with Rambo and a downbeat conclusion. (laughs) At the end of Rambo... You know, i.e. the fourth one. Keep up, do. Uh, <laughs> our erstwhile hero finally returned home to Arizona in his dad's ranch. Last Blood finds him here, with a family of sorts. Somehow. <laughs> as far as I can tell, there's no relationship between them. They're just there, for some reason. Maybe so that one of them can die and give Rambo a reason to kill a bunch of people. But that doesn't <laughs> seem very likely, does it? <laughs> Against his wishes, Rambo's sort of but not really but may as well be daughter goes off to Mexico to find her real father and ask him why he abandoned her and her mother. And because she's in Mexico, that beautiful, fascinating and varied country with 126 million people, 56 distinct indigenous groups and even more languages, she naturally is immediately the victim of crime as she is betrayed by her Mexican friend, seized by a sex trafficking cartel and forced into prostitution. It's not for nothing that this film has been criticised for the way it treats Mexicans. (laughs) After his first attempt to niece it ends in him beaten and comatose, Paz Vega briefly appears as Juanita Exposition, and then Rambo returns to the prostitution den and kills a bunch of people before the daughter dies of that most terrible of medical conditions, Plot. (laughs) Rambo then beheads the younger of the two cartel leaders to entice the older brother to chase Rambo back to Arizona with a veritable army where he prepares a very adult home alone worthy welcome for them (laughs) in his tunnel complex that of course he built it's rotten Scott (laughs) I don't know what makes it sound pretty good (laughs) 
Far from the worst film in the genre, it's still barely beyond the direct-to-video knockoffs the Rambo films themselves inspired in their thousands. And whereas the violence in 2008 was entertainingly over the top, here it feels gratuitous and crass, and that underlying attitude towards Mexico leaves a bad taste in the mouth. This isn't a Michael Winner film, is it? (laughs) Sounds like it. Uh, Death Wish part Rambo. Yes. (laughs) Uh, God, I think Death Wish may be a step up, actually. Oh, God. (laughs) Yes, I I let this one slide by me. I'm I'm not unhappy with that state of affairs, to be honest with you. I've never actually seen a a Death Wish film. I've seen bits and pieces of them in a a, a takedown of Death Wish 3 in... Uh, an episode of Best of the Worst, but I don't believe it's any better. I, I fail to believe that it's not a good film. Which, not to say I didn't enjoy parts of it, but it's just, it's not good. <laughs> Especially when, like, literally, six SUVs full of incredibly heavily armed people come from Mexico into the United States. And I, no. <laughs> no. No. Not happening. I mean, yeah. I don't want to get into any sort of political tangents with walls and stuff, but Rocky could have built a wall over the Mexican border with the bodies of the people he killed at the end. <laughs> yes. Pass this one by, Scott. You could watch Rambo 2008 again, which I did before I saw this, and that was fun. Forgettable in most ways, but fun. This is... Nah, it's not good. <laughs> right, and since you haven't seen that, let's move on to something that you have seen, Scott, which is a film from Venezuela that is on the list because at one point you said you were interested in it and it's been on my list of things ever since to keep an eye out for. It's finally to get a hold of it and now neither of us can remember why you wanted to watch it. No, no. Um, I have a vague feeling that it showed up in some best of lists a couple of years back probably, although the release dates for this seem to be a bit vague in as much as it's somehow a, mod- a film that's still getting released like this year, despite it being made in 2017, so I think it's one of these uh, slowly coming out at festivals across the globe. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, La Familia. Uh, we don't get a lot of Venezuelan films coming through our doors. Perhaps that was uh, enough of itself. Um, so yeah, I wasn't quite sure what to expect of Gustavo Rondon Cordova's recent-ish <laughs> drama, depending on how you count it. Um, it's set in the less salubrious end of Caracas, where 12-year-old Pedro, played by Reggie Reyes, does some very typical 12-year-old things, like playing with his his friends, uh, when he's held up at gunpoint by a shockingly young kid from an even less salubrious part of Caracas. This altercation ends in blood, but not Pedro's. On returning home to his father, Giovanni Garcia's address, uh, his father recognises that the severity, not just of his actions, but the probably disproportionate reaction it will provoke from the local thug's family, and he takes Pedro on the lam. At the risk of being a little bit dismissive, there's not a great deal more to tell you on a narrative level. Uh, the family camp out in the, the middle-class house that Andres has been working on renovating, and he tries to make a bit of quick extra-legal cash with a side gig, while the father and son try to come to terms with the shifting dynamic of the relationship, which didn't seem all that warm to begin with, uh, while also dealing with the stress of their particular situation. So, uh, I'd be lying if I said I was entirely blown away by La Familia, but I was quite engaged with it throughout, despite, arguably, there not being all that much happening in there after the first act. As a character piece, it's... uh, Well, it, it held my interest... And the relationships between father and son seem natural and believable in as much as there's not a lot explicitly said. It's more about the nuances of smaller actions. 
I'm just not altogether sure that fits in with the higher stakes drama of the opening, though. I was almost expecting it to turn into City of God, but this is centred on avoiding violence, not instigating it. So, while it held my attention well enough for two hours, at the end I was perhaps left wanting more, um, either a deeper insight into the characters, or the setting, or the drama of the events, or ideally all of the above, and just about enough progress is kind of pushed into each of those axes uh, to make it uh, a good film, but I can't say it's a great one. I wasn't blown away by it, as I say. I kind of got the end of it so well. I, I enjoyed that, but I'm not quite sure what the point of any of it was, which will be a bigger problem with another film we'll go to talk on later on. But um, this uh, this one, um, I, I could at least see what they were aiming for, but I don't think they quite nailed it. Still, quite enjoyed it. It's worth looking at, but probably not one that's worth making extra special efforts to try and track down. I was kind of disappointed by this, possibly because I've been trying to find it for two years. Um, <laughs> so there was always that build-up there, um, even though I never could remember exactly why you'd wanted to. <laughs> I, I know you told me at the time, but I was like, that sort of got lost while I was waiting for it to be available anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, you mentioned the runtime, and actually it's you said to us, it's actually like 78 minutes, and one of those rare things like, I want oh, yeah. more! Yeah, <laughs> It's a remarkably short film. I mean, I don't. I can't really add a great deal more to to what you're saying, Scott. It's like it's after that first act, not a lot happens. Um, yeah, and not uh, every film needs to have stuff happening all the time to be enjoyable. But this film does start with stuff happening very quickly, and then nothing happens nothing happening for a long it. time. And uh, <laughs> it, it just sets a very strange expectation of um, pacing and what the film is actually going to be about. That is then cut away by the remainder, like, hour of it. Because that's all in the first, God, maybe even ten minutes, um, where it's, uh, there's lots of lots of quick changes between scenes and relations and what's happening, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, n- now you're going to watch a guy building a wall for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a... I say this a lot, I think you could, Scott, that sometimes it's just nice to sort of get like a window into another, another yeah. country, another society, one that, certainly one you don't see often, unless you say, how often does a Venezuelan film come across our desk? Yeah. I'm not entirely convinced I've seen another one. So if I have, I don't remember what it was. Yeah, yeah. And also, it's, with any Spanish language film, I've seen like how much I can understand, and I realise that basically if it's not Mexico or Spain, I'm stuffed because I can't understand it. <laughs> Argentina's not bad if I remember that they pronounce double L's and Y's as shh for some reason but I couldn't understand the word although I think it's actually the dialect more than accent this time yeah it's it's vaguely disappointing because they're I feel like it could have done a bit more I don't even know what I wanted to do but there's there's not a lot there Ultimately, what I found a bit frustrating is more of the setting, um, because I would really like to know more about where they're living in and yeah, the yeah. relationship. Because you know they, they mention all, the, but they're from the slums next door, and it's you know it's bad. And it kind of sets up some sort of, or it seems like it's going to go to try to explain how those societies mesh. Because then obviously you've got him moving from the what well, still says fairly humble. Um, apartments to where he's hiding out in the kind of more middle class areas and then it moves up to the where he's going to the parties and where he kind of starts uh, working as a, uh, a wait staff and kind of steals booze you know that's the, the kind of the posh areas and it goes through all these parts in Venezuela but it doesn't really examine any of them it just you just get a little bit of a tour through it and then at the end of course it's going to like the you know out in the sticks it's out in the, the, the kind of very poor villages by the looks of it uh, but 
there's no depth to any of that. It's all just like, here's a bit, here's a bit, here's another bit. And you just kind of get a little, you're on a bus ride through it. You don't get actually get to go out and smell the roses in any of these uh, locations, which is a little bit frustrating to me. Yeah, there's, um, well, there's, there's obvious like surface level stuff that you don't need to have any sort of great um, skill at film reading to get. It's like, mm-hmm. Basically, the, the lower um, down the social ladder you get, the darker the skin is. Yeah. Uh, that's um, true in so many places. It's it's not a surprise, but it's it's the reality there. And so you see, when they go to the parties, the guests are conspicuously shining white. <laughs> you know, they're, they're yeah. as pale as I am. So there's, there's obviously that in it just inherently, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I do wonder if that plays better just in general, like the the social stratification and stuff that just plays better in Venezuela where some of that's already understood yeah but for an international audience I think you need I mean you can guess at some I think reasonably enough and there's, there's a lot of Latin America that's like and I also got very much thought of City of God mm-hmm. uh, while watching this and I thought it was kind of going to head down that route as well yeah uh, particularly when you see that kid pull the gun yeah yeah because uh, yeah. that felt very like how City of God begins that tone but yeah so for an international audience I kind of feel you need more of an in to the society and maybe just to, to say more I don't know if if Cordova is trying to if he feels that his film itself is, is condemnation if that's what he's going for at all yeah um, I would it's like a a wee bit more of a not a prescription but I don't know a slightly kind of stronger tone perhaps to to guide, if that makes sense. It could, if if it is intended to say anything about Venezuelan society, um, he needs to be less of a coward and not use subtext. Um, <laughs> because in this case, it's, it, 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 it didn't seem to be doing anything more than pointing out the obvious in terms of wealth and race disparity. And it's like, yeah, that's that's fine. And I suppose it's worth saying, but it's you can you can kind of it's almost assumed at this point really. It wasn't really saying anything more than that, which was a bit of a shame. And it, also, that didn't really tie in to the events that actually kicked this off, which never really get resolved in any meaningful sense. Yeah, because um, it's not even like it's a slice of life thing, which I would. Uh, I mean, part of it is, I guess, but and I yeah. would accept that. Except that, unless things are considerably worse there than um, I think. That that violence at the start is yeah. surely not slice of life. That's I would hope that would be on the extreme end. Yeah, um, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is slice of life. In which case, then the film feels quite different. I would need more information to know that. Yes, it, it wouldn't tie in with my understanding. I mean, obviously, the bits where he's thought where they're dealing with the kind of hyperinflation and all that—that's very much slice of life. But the, the, in terms of it just being so violent, I don't quite get that from. What I understand of Venezuela, but you know it's hard to say when. Who knows exactly what the truth is when you're dealing with regimes like you have in Venezuela? Yeah, uh, what uh, the truth is. Un- unfortunately, what I mostly know about Venezuela is, you know, 19th century Venezuela of Bolivar. Thanks to the Revolutions podcast, I know <laughs> sort of about the current Venezuela, so I'm about 150 years behind here. <laughs> uh, I- I'm figuring. You know, so I'm looking at the IMDb page for La Familia at the moment, Scott, uh, and assuming that I have missed something. Um, because I mean, I, I'm sure IMDb is always perfect. So, in which case the related <laughs> the related news articles next to it would would give us some insight, right? Related news for La Familia: Zama, 
Killing Jesus to screen in IFF Panama Bureau American Showcase. Okay. Mm-hmm. Film movement scoops up celluloid titles The Soar La Familia. And thirdly, Kendall Jenner flaunts rock solid abs after shutting down pregnancy rumours. No. <laughs> Now, I'm so confused. Yeah, no, actually, now that has uh, that has radically reinterpreted the film for me. Now I have that information in mind, and I know that it's actually about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Ken. What? I, I neither know nor care to know who or what a Kendall Jenner is, but I I don't remember that having anything to do with this film at all. Most peculiar. Yes, <laughs> I'm just thrown by that. I was. Yes. Shall we crash onwards then to pain and glory? Yes, let us do that. I'm a stronger ground there, fortunately. <laughs> Pedro Almodovar's Dolor y Gloria, Pain and Glory, begins with a film director reuniting with an actor whom he made famous and later fell out with. And during the film, the two will reconcile and together produce some of the best work of their respective careers. That director, Salvador Mayo, is played by Antonio Banderas, an actor who found fame in Almodovar's films before falling out with him and later reconciling. You will then, I imagine, be unsurprised to learn that Mayo is an analogue for Almodovar himself. I know writers that use <laughs> subtext, they're cowards. Uh, and that as well as being a celebration of film, the artistic process, the channeling of one's own pain into one's work, and a number of other themes, it's also pretty meta, by which I mean extremely meta. <laughs> Not that Mayo is simply an Almodovar cut and paste. He's a full, rounded character in his own right, and played superbly by Banderas, who must have been given a lot of trust by the director, just as Mayo trust Cesar Achiendia's Alberto Crespo in the film. The chronically ill and possibly hypochondriac Mayo cannot work, having not fully recovered from the death of his mother and his physical pain and depression. A retrospective screening of one of his films, the same film in fact that drove him and Alberto apart, compels him to mend bridges with the actor and leads to a series of reminiscences of his life. It also eventually leads to Salvador entrusting Mayo with Addiction, a memoir of an incredibly important period of his life, and as a result of that, to an act of reunion that is moving and gently heartbreaking, and among the greatest scenes in any of the director's films. It is also not the only scene in the film in which I felt my eyes glistening, though there's no hint of mawkishness anywhere. If you listened to our Pedro Almodovar episode a little while ago, then you'll probably be unsurprised to hear me describing pain and glory as beautiful, colourful and full of light. It really looks glorious, from the colour of Salvador's vivid clothing to the seemingly crisp white of the walls of his childhood home. Banderas is simply amazing, a performance informed both by his ability and his friendship with his director, and Echendia and Almodovar regulars Penelope Cruz and Julieta Serrano as the younger and older versus Mayo's mother Jacinta give excellent support. Pain and Glory is magnificent, touching, charming, graceful, beautiful, issuing the mawkishness others might have fallen prey to, particularly in the more personal and emotional scenes. There's plenty to dig into too, with commentary on the Franco era, piousness and religious control over education, as well as a prominent comment on a very recent, very polarising case involving the gang rape of a woman in Pamplona in 2016. But it's also simply a compelling character piece and a celebration of art and its power to explain and heal. This gets my patented, it's off a good <laughs> rating. I only watched half of this, so I'm not going to pass too much comment on it, but what I mainly took away was that 
I assume that Almodovar's now on the horse. <laughs> Plainly spoken to heroin. That seems to be the, the takeaway from it. Uh, yeah, don't let it be, actually. That's... Um, <laughs> no, um, I, no, it's not. It's not. That's kind of a, a side thing, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's more of a mechanism for him to explore his past, actually, yeah, than anything else. Yeah. Um, I watched half of this, unfortunately. At the minute, the English subtitles are gash, and my Spanish is also gash and combined. I kind of got enough to get muddled way through the first half of it, but it was giving me a tension headache, and um, I decided to stop. I was in the same place as the director himself at that point. I was going to need to go and lie there in a darkened room, so I thought I will wait until either I've learned enough Spanish or more likely the English subtitles come out in a couple of months and I can watch this properly um, I up until that point I can certainly agree with a lot of it I mean obviously visually it's Almodovar uh, it looks like an Almodovar film like, but even with the perhaps with the contrast styles cranked up even more looks absolutely fabulous and um, uh, tremendous performance from Banderas um, even the, the half that I saw and I can only assume that we get a lot better so I'm, I'm looking forward to watching this properly and um, yeah, even the, from the taste that I had of it uh, I, I certainly can uh, back up or at least preliminary back up what you're saying there I can't imagine there's anything that would happen in the second half that would make it less awesome than the first half um, <laughs> assuming I understood it correctly How far did you get? Um, I would guess about 45 minutes something like that um, just after the he fails to turn up for the first the screening of that film Right, so when they're arguing in the kitchen Give or take, yeah Yeah, yeah okay right. Yeah, the best stuff is actually all after that So right. yeah, you're in for a treat uh, Good Yeah, I missed this in the cinema, unfortunately But I got the Spanish Blu-ray and I watched it in Spanish mm-hmm. uh, I did look into the English subs to help me But the uh, the only ones available are Google they have, Translated they have, Garbage yes, yes, they have they have the width of the auto-translate about them Yeah, uh, um, I just I was like, yeah, no, I'll stick to Spanish It was a wee bit of a struggle But um, I, I got most of it Yeah and it's just, it's fantastic. It's just such a beautiful film as well. Yeah. The only thing that was throwing me a little bit is Antonio Banderas, in my head, is always has the, the long, luscious, flowing locks of Desperado. Desperado and yeah, having, yeah. having watched it so recently, um, seeing him as an old guy <laughs> just seems weird. Still, a, a very well-preserved old guy, but there's altogether too much silver in that beard for um, <laughs> for my liking. Uh, was yeah. it Antonio Banderas It was also in Zorro? The Mask of Zorro and such. Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, was, so, yeah. yeah I, I tend to think of it on that period as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Actually, when we went back to those Almondovar films recently, Scott's seen them in stuff like Women on the Verge of an Aeros Breakdown. Like, he's oh, too young He's there. too young. He's there. too young. That's, now, that's now too far. Now he's too old and looks too, mo- too much like <laughs> Almondovar himself. It's like, yes. yeah. <laughs> you don't fit with my mental image of um, Desperado era, Antonio Banderas. You can't possibly be real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, definitely one of his best. Almodovar and really good film shock. Film yes. Alan. Yeah. And I know I, I am I'm more enamoured of Almodovar than you are yourself at the start. I know you like a, a good number of his films. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Certainly the first half of it seemed to be challenging Volver for being right up there with his best. So yes, looking forward to completing it. Yeah, I have nothing more to say. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this and it's definitely a film I will be returning to at some point in the future. And Scott will be returning to finish it in the future. Yes. Okay, we're going to move on then to another film, which, in case you wondered where my interest in this film came from, Scott, it was mentioned on the same episode of Radio Force, the film programme as Julie. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which is the entire knowledge I had of Lazzaro Felice, or Happy as Lazzaro, until I watched it. So, 
that, that was my reason for watching it. It was on that same episode of a podcast I listened to. <laughs> Why don't you fill the folk in? Yeah, so Happy's Last Row, according to last year's cans at least, was 2018's best screenplay. And had I known that before writing these notes, perhaps that would have raised my expectations for a film I'd otherwise know little about. Or, well, given the usual taste of awards panels, perhaps it would have substantially lowered expectations. The point I'm driving at is that I didn't have much of an idea about what Happy's Last Row was going uh, to be going into it. And having watched it, I'm not sure I'm any the wiser. Uh, our titular that's row, uh, Adriano Tardiolo, is a good-natured, compliant farmhand on an Italian tobacco farm, which has been, uh, through a route not made abundantly clear, been isolated from the rest of the world since we later find out is 1977. There, Nicoletta Brashi's hated Marchesa Alfonsina di Luna, the queen of cigarettes, holds the farm workers in a serfdom of a sharecropping eternal debt, living cheek to jowl in overcrowded hovels while the Marchesa and her son, Luca Cicavani's uh, Marquis Tancredi, live in luxury. Uh, this comes to a head when Tancredi, in part tired of his life and in part ashamed of their exploitation of the workers, enlists Lazaro's help in faking his own kidnapping as they do strike up a friendship. The eventual police investigation brings this whole scam crashing down, by which point I sort of thought I had a grasp on it. <laughs> the, the, the initial early doors weirdness of seeing characters in conditions from the 1670s, with management having cars from the 1950s and Tancredi having clothes from the 80s and mobile phones from the early 2000s was just a clever ruse to put one off balance before the scam is revealed. At which point, there's an interlude with a magic wolf that causes Lazaro <laughs> to skip forward in time like 30 years without ageing, who then tries to track down Tancredi and the rest of his family in a series of weird coincidences that don't go well for anyone. Rip Van Wilfel. <laughs> yes, uh, it just did not coalesce around any sort of point whatsoever. Now, this is normally the cue for me to dust off the vitriol cannon, but for reasons I'm not quite completely clear on, I quite liked Happy's Lazaro. Yes, thank you. I, I feel almost excited like this. <laughs> What's going on? No idea. I really like this. Adriano <laughs> um, Tardulos like gives a likable performance for an oddball character that's somewhere between Forrest Gump and Napoleon Dynamite, and he plays well off uh, Chicovani and. Tommaso Regano as the elder uh, Tancredi incarnation very well. Um, I like the older one a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so while I can't say I've grasped the point writer-director Alice Rohrwacher, Rohrwacher probably, uh, was trying to make, or indeed that I'm particularly convinced that there actually was a point to it at all, I enjoyed watching it unfold and that's enough for me. I'll take what I can get these days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> very, very strange film, but I'm quite glad I watched it. Yeah, uh, by the time I got around to watching this... Um I, I had forgotten anything that had been said on that episode of the podcast. I actually mm-hmm. only went back to listen to it again after I'd watched this. So I couldn't actually remember what it was about. It was like, I know I was interested in this. I'll yeah. give it a go. Uh, and yeah, it's just, and there's a good chunk at the start of the film that was like trying to place it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I know parts of rural Italy, particularly the south, well, I think this is set in central Italy, is um, it's really quite poor, even though like, Italy's like the sixth or seventh biggest economy in the world. Yeah. Um, which just kept coming back to say, like, I know they're a poor bit. But Not that poor. But it's, <laughs> but, it's, but it's Italy and like they're, they're living in hovels and they don't go to school. So is it, so is it like... Is this historical? Is, is, what's going on here? Is what? it early 20th century or something? And yeah. I'm like, okay, then it, it moves on a bit and then you see some of the vehicles. Like, well, is it mid 20th century? And then you see the, the remnants of a broken railway bridge which obviously still exists now because they, they filmed there but like well I guess that would probably have been bombed during World War 2 so it's maybe just post World War 2 Italy getting reconstructed coming out of fascism okay I get it it might be they're, they're quite so poor and stuff right and then um, 
the then Tancredi pulls out this mobile phone from the 1990s. So, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. But, it, but it's Italy. It's not some uh, developing country or something. It's Italy. Yes. Again, I know poor areas, but Italy is really rich, one of the biggest economies in the world. And then I started to like pick up and say, oh, right, no, they've just they've, um, basically been cut off yeah. from the world and they're basically being held as slaves. Certainly no better than a kind of peasant um, or serf kind of thing with a feudal landlord. Mm. Uh, the most shocking thing uh, that I found out afterwards is it's based on a true story. <laughs> this actually happened. Jeez, oh. <laughs> the, the, this area was cut off by floods um, at some point, and they basically the people never got out, and they, just, they were just kept in um, feudal serfdom by this tremendously evil woman. <laughs> and then, so like the the police officer comes out, turns out the police officer in this film is the hero, which is um, <laughs> sometimes an interesting change. And then, so that happens, and then Lazaro he falls from the cliff, and okay. Magic wolf comes along, as you say, Scott. And some of it got, oh, okay. I mean, I'm not really buying that he's he's not dead from his fall, but but okay. And then, but he, he goes to Inviolata in the manor house there, and it's empty. Okay, I guess you'd been arrested the last couple of days. People are robbing it? Okay. And he walks into town, and the, the season changes from... In the height of summer to bitter cold winter as he walks into town. Okay, this is going a bit surreal. What is mm-hmm. going on? Oh, right. He's now in the future as some sort of kind ghost man. <laughs> what? Maybe, kind of. Um, and then, but that, I was just enjoying the character interaction so much. And just, yeah. like, Latzer himself is such a simple guy. It's simply kind of every time like you're uncomplicated, straightforward, but really dim as well. Uh, yeah. And, and then there's that horrible bit when he's in the bank. Nah, I mean, at that point, I'd given up trying to ascribe anything <laughs> to it. It's very much magical realism. And yeah. The whole thing's a fable. I guess. I'm not meant to take it um, literally. Yeah, exactly. But this kind of like the really cherubic looking guy who was like picked from a thousand people for his the way he looked like in like old master paintings and stuff that he would have yeah. that sort of look at kind of an, vaguely angelic. And it's just. I don't know, it's such a strange film, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I don't think I've seen much like it. It's probably quite hard to recommend, though, I think, because it doesn't have a narrative structure as such. It's disjointed in many ways and quite odd. And I really, really enjoyed it, and I'm really glad I saw it. Yeah, it's just a a very weird film. But it works. It it manages to pull everything off quite well. Um, I think mainly it's just such a likeable blank slate of a main character that you can project quite a lot into and his little interactions between the uh, various people as they as, as he's taken advantage of throughout the entire film, basically. Yeah, it, it just works very well, um, despite being the sort of thing that I would that would normally raise my hackles up, but my hackles remained down for the period <laughs> of it. So, yeah, um, yeah, very well done. Also, the wolf is a real wolf. So that's good. They managed to get a real wolf to walk along the road for their camera. That's impressive, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, odd but good. Take that for what you will. Yes. So I suppose that will that will actually wrap us up. But uh, I don't know. Actually, a fair number of decent films in this episode, which has not really been the case for the past few months, I think. So um, I'll, I'll take that as a win. Yeah, uh, certainly plenty of interest in there. 
Um, yeah. They're just, even, even the ones that are about Rambo's side that not necessarily sure whether it's good, definitely interesting. Like yeah. Like Astro, so yeah. In fact, uh, Rambo's only bad film in the lot, so that's a pretty good hit rate. Yes, not a bad ratio indeed. Um, if you'd like to talk to us about these films or anything else you have a fancy to discuss, then why not do so on Twitter? So we're there at FudsOnFilm, facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm, or you can email us at podcast at FudsOnFilm.com. Uh, but until next time, when we talk about the films of... Catherine Bigelow. Uh, we shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that Drew shall do too. Hasta luego. Ta-da! Ta-da!